we're still all trained to say, well, it's in the media. If it's in the New York Times or it's in the local news, it holds some level of weight or truth to it. But then there's also this this pulling back of, well, they're not gonna know everything around black people. And certainly if we look in the early days and some of the early deaths in the United States, they were black people, but they weren't being reported on by race, if at all. And so in absence of a story that makes sense to black communities, you start looking to other places to fill in the blanks and that's what takes you into you know certain online spaces. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. July 9th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Brandy Collins-Dexter, the senior campaign director at the advocacy organization Color of Change, and a visiting fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She recently published a report with the Shorenstein Center on Canaries in the Coal Mine, COVID-19 Misinformation in Black Communities, tracing how different false narratives about the pandemic surfaced among Black social media users in the United States. So what makes this misinformation unique and especially dangerous? And how should tech companies' responses account for the ways that the Black community is particularly vulnerable to misinformation? We also discussed Color of Change's role in the hashtag Stop Hate for Profit campaign, an ad boycott of Facebook and protest of the company's handling of potentially harmful speech on its platform. The day after we spoke with Brandy, Color of Change and other activists actually met with Facebook to discuss the campaign. But, spoiler alert, they walked away feeling that nothing much had changed, and so our conversation remains just as relevant. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 9th. Brandy Collins-Dexter on COVID-19 misinformation and Black communities. Brandy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so we have a, a lot to discuss, but to start off, can you just sort of give us an overview of what Color of Change does and what your role is there? Yes. So Color of Change is the largest online racial justice organization in the United States. We have about 7 million members, and we work in service of racial justice on a number of different fronts. And so um, really tying issues of net neutrality and tech accountability and criminal justice and economic justice to issues of um, racial equity at broad. And I am the senior campaign director at Color of Change. I oversee our media culture and economic justice department. So anything that um, has anything to do with economics, big tech, culture, all of that, that is my beat. Awesome. And you've been doing a lot of really important work and we want to get back to that. But the place that we actually wanted to start and the reason why we wanted to talk to you today um, was you recently wrote a report called Canaries in the Coal Mine, COVID-19 Misinformation in Black Communities that reviewed the disproportionate effects of medical misinformation about the coronavirus pandemic and the effects that that's having on black communities. So, you know, the pandemic famously created an infodemic of misinformation and just a sheer flood of information more broadly. Uh, What is it that you found in your report about misinformation in Black communities in particular that makes it unique? Yeah. So just to go back a little bit. So I actually took a sabbatical late last year and got to do a fellowship at the Harvard Shorenstein Institute and studied disinformation and particularly that targeted towards Black communities. And so had really started to look deeply at the different ways in which we saw information traveling in these spaces that weren't really being observed by traditional disinformation um, journalists or researchers. And so cut to 
like beginning of COVID, um, not just because I am, you know, of the Black community and, and see a lot of stuff coming in, but through that analysis was starting to see early on that there were a number of dangerous tropes flying around. So the first big one was that Black people could not get coronavirus. So in the early days, which it seems crazy to say that now, but like in the early days, there was a lot of content and memes flying across different platforms saying that Black people couldn't get Rona, that it was because of melanin, that was it was because of a number of other issues. And we were immediately alarmed by that. So we started reaching out to tech companies and um, saying to them that this information was flying and started tracking it. And through that process, saw more disinformation that was flying through communities and really tracking that and going back to Harvard and kind of comparing notes. And from that, this research of like, okay, what are the four main tropes that we're seeing here? Black people can't get COVID, that COVID is directly related to 5G technology, um, the Bill Gates vaccination narrative. And again, a lot of these aren't necessarily things that are exclusive to the Black community, but that were disproportionately moving through the Black community. And then finally, that herbal remedies were alone something that could solve for COVID-19. So that's that's what the um, root of the paper is based on. And so do you have a sense, you sort of touched on it there in terms of, you know, that the some of this misinformation was flying around among multiple communities. I know I saw plenty of folks tweeting about 5G who are not on Black Twitter, who are from other races, mm-hmm. other countries. Do you have any sense of whether there is a particularly large amount of misinformation that was traveling within the Black community? Or was it, you know, particularly worrying for reasons that we can go into? Yeah, I mean, so as you mentioned, like a lot of these um, narratives were not exclusive to the Black community. I think I included in the article around 5G towers getting burned down in the UK related to this conspiracy theory. But we saw a couple of things of note. And so one, that there were people that were influencers with particularly large platforms that were pushing this disinformation or misinformation into like contained spaces that were off the radar of a lot of other people that might be watching externally. And so that means it it was doing more damage in some ways, one could argue, than this wasn't just, you know, somebody who has like 10 followers, you know, shouting this out into a, a black hole. These are people with like tens of thousands to millions of followers with blue checks, respected black people in the communities, in some cases, pushing the disinformation, which gave it a veneer of credibility. So that was one thing. And then two, um, one of the things that we noticed, particularly given the disproportionate impact of COVID-19, which we also knew anecdotally early on, even before the data came out, that it was particularly urgent that this idea that Black people could not get it at all and in no way had to protect themselves or could um, kind of magically cure ourselves if we did get it, that that really stood to have a particularly devastating impact on the Black community. And again, I'll also say this, I focused on the Black community, but we saw similar things traveling through um, East Asian communities and Latinx communities. Like there were these sort of sets of tropes that were traveling through different communities of color, but particularly these were the ones that we looked at for Black people. Yeah, I want to go back to the the point you make about how the pandemic has been just really hard on Black communities. So we're recording this on July 6th. The New York Times has this big report out from data that they they sued the CDC to get that basically shows mm-hmm. that Black Americans um, and Latinx Americans, as you say, have just been devastated by the virus. So 
first off, I'm, I'm interested when you say that you sort of heard that anecdotally before the data coming in, like what you mean by that, and if you can tell us a little bit more about it. And second off, if you could just sort of talk a little bit about what that particular effect of the pandemic means in terms of the danger of this information to this particular community. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think first step was just common sense analysis, right? So it's like any any pandemic or anything that's going to hit a community in a certain way, the people who are most frontline workers, the people who live in most enclosed spaces, the people that have um, some of the, the pre-existing conditions that were, were coming up here are more likely to be on the front line. And so we knew from early data coming in, things like um, sickle cell anemia was particularly people that had that pre-existing condition in Italy were particularly devastated by COVID-19. Black people are more susceptible to that. Lupus, you know, blood disease, like, you know, on and on down the list, diabetes, all of those things that make you more susceptible are things that disproportionately harm the Black community. So that that, that was like the immediate sign. The second thing was even just strikingly, so I'm, I'm, Black. I'm married to a white man. We would be getting on the Zoom calls with our families and like we would talk to his family and they would be like, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, all of this is happening, but we're not really sure what's going on. And we're just like, you know, doing our walks by the ocean and kind of all of this stuff and going to wait it out. And then I would talk to my family and it would just be like, oh, this person's parent died. This person's, you know, cousin has it. It was just like on and on, like it's just a different conversation with my family. And this was like across class, across age, which again was verified by New York Times, across location. Um, It really was clear that there were stories of people being actively harmed in my family that that wasn't happening in my husband's family. I think in terms of just the, the danger of that, you know, beyond death. I think there's so many implications in terms of like the ability to work. Um, There's economic implications. One of the things that I said before that I've said again is that those frontline workers that didn't have the ability to go into their house and not come out, like a lot of those people are disproportionately Black. And so day after day, it's like people going out, people being exposed, people coming back to their families in these like enclosed you know, different areas around the country and what that means in terms of like economic instability, in terms of death, in terms of like medical costs, in terms of like the ability to even engage with our families. Like all of that is like deeply impacted our ability to understand the way information is traveling online and what to trust and what not to trust. That's like a huge piece of this, which is what brings me to the tech accountability frame. Well, first, um, so sorry to hear about your experience and thank you for sharing it because I think it really makes what we're talking about here very real and vivid. Um, Let's talk about responses then to this kind of misinformation from platforms because I think one of the things that your report really draws out uh, or, or, you know, you can feel free to agree or disagree with this, but that kind of a colorblind response to misinformation or disinformation isn't really adequate because it's going to miss aspects of culture or the way that uh, these communities communicate in particular that either doesn't show the misinformation um, showing up or it doesn't address its disproportionate effects. So I guess, do you agree with that? And how should responses account for racial disparities? Like one of the things that you note is that tech companies often lack adequate cultural knowledge about black communities. What is it that they're missing? There's so many factors here. One, 
part of the the challenge of content moderation is just the scale of it. There's so much content flying around at any given moment. And I haven't seen any company that's adequately equipped with people that can even deal with it at scale. So that's that's the, the, the big first problem. Second problem is that oftentimes content moderators, for a number of reasons, are not necessarily from the country where they're doing content moderation. Part of this is understandable is the trauma associated with content moderation and, and how challenging that can be if you're directly connected to the content that you're seeing. But there's a number of other issues to that as well, which makes it can make it challenging just generally to look at content moderation in another country and be able to like see what's dangerous, how the conversation is moving. But then when you get specific into different cultural spaces where people may be using different words and terminology, you know, almost coded language, which is the interesting thing about to use a bit of a dated term, kind of quote unquote Ebonics, which is like often um, tracked to Black American vernacular. What's often left out of the conversation about that is that that was actually intentionally encrypted language that Black people started using in order to to have conversations in front of white folks that they wouldn't be able to track, right? And so there's still kind of like archives of that in the ways in which we communicate. And because of globalization, the way we talk publicly, there are certain things that have made their way into mainstream, but there's a lot about the language that can be hard to track and certainly hard to put into algorithms to make it able to like track down even more because it's such a shapeshifter. And particularly in the conversation about COVID-19, that was shifting so fast. You know, people were saying Rona, people were like using other sort of terminology for it. And it was really hard to, to bake, to bake that down into like an algorithmic checklist, right. To see where's this conversation happening. So that's another issue. Then there's like the obvious like elephant in the room, which is that, you know, Silicon Valley don't like to hire black people. And this has always been true. And even though these tools have a certain amount of cultural cachet that in a lot of ways is built on Black culture, whether it's a lot of gifts that have, you know, Black people and Black emotions in it, whether it's the things that go viral that tend to be content from reality shows or other spaces that oftentimes disproportionately feature Black people. There's a lot in which Silicon Valley is built upon Black culture, but has not put in place decision makers, content moderators, um, people thinking about these issues at all, who reflect the communities that um, they are leveraging for their platforms. And so that also adds a layer of, you know, a complication in terms of the ability to really understand what people are seeing, even as things are sort of mutating and conversations are shifting in real time. Yeah. So Brandy, if I can, I want to dig in a little bit more on the examples that you mentioned about people posting on Twitter, using slang, using African-American vernacular English. So one of the examples you flag in the paper is a a tweet that, as you've said, uses Rona to describe the virus instead of the coronavirus. You also note remixes of Cardi B messages on Instagram. So can you talk a little, like, get us a little bit more into the specifics of sort of what specific ways Black people were communicating this information that that wasn't getting picked up and like why it is that it wasn't getting picked up, like the, the mechanics of why, you know, if you type in Rona, you don't get the same flags as you might if you type in coronavirus. Yeah, so there's a there's a couple of pieces to this. So the one the the one that you're speaking to is like that breakdown of language. So in the first couple of days, Rona 
um, was really popular shorthand in uh, various communities, particularly Black, around COVID. If you go into Rona now, interestingly enough, most of it is overrun with white people using it as slang. Um, It's already sort of involved as a term in different Black spaces, but also it's, it's partially what is understood within the culture in certain ways that is not understood broadly. And then there's two, who is the the spokesperson or who is doing the speaking. So in some ways, and again, going back to my relationship with my husband, there are people that I know that are like celebrities in the Black community that I grew up knowing and listening to and following that if you said their name, he wouldn't really know who you were talking about. Um, Carrie Hilton is actually one of them, who's one of the people that I brought up that use the 5G technology. Now, she's had a couple of crossover records, but for the most part, her popularity is majority within the Black community. And so a lot of the people that are watching and engaging with her and sharing content are other Black people. And then when you also break that down into um, some of the shorthand of the ways in which we may be talking about our community or the spread of the virus, or some of the jokes that we may make, just like any any space. I mean, it's it's similar to geography. It's similar to any other cultural space we live in, and where in which there may be things that are happening that are understood by people within your family, your neighborhood, your block, but aren't understood broadly. Um, there's a lot of nicknames. There's a lot of humor also attributed to things, which I think can also be. I think harmful in some of the tracking, particularly if you're looking for a particular type of content that might ping either alarmist or overtly tinfoil hatty or like any of the other things, again, that you put on a checkbox. There's a lot of humor around the way things are, are shared in addition to the colloquialisms that can make it hard to come on the radar of somebody, particularly if they're not manually checking for disinformation. When we were first tracking that, we um, happened to have a meeting with Twitter, also around disinformation, but I think it was more around either census or electoral disinformation that was coming from the president. And in real time, in the like week between when we booked the meeting and when we were going in, I was starting to see in my own networks a lot of things flying. A lot of it actually even came from my parents. I'm not really on Facebook anymore, but my mom would be screenshotting something that got shared in her closed Facebook group or on WhatsApp and sending it over to me. We were also coming up on the Illinois elections and my family's from Chicago. So we were having this like back and forth debate around whether or not they should even go out and cast a vote, which is its own layer of harm and trauma within itself. But I I was I was alarmed by the different things that I was seeing that was coming on their radar as people in their 60s around disinformation. And there was no fact checking mechanisms and no place they could go and no even like black owned media really to speak of. So it was like who do we trust? What do we trust? And when we went to Twitter initially with that um, and said this was happening, they didn't see it as an issue and, and initially declined to really do anything about it. But within weeks, days, even the way everything flipped so fast, it became something that was unignorable. And to Twitter's credit, they became the first major tech company to actually do something around it. But it was in some ways the damage was already done before tech companies really intervened productively. So can I just pick up on something that you mentioned there about, um, you know, the dearth of 
black-owned media and things. Um, and it's something that you talk about in your report as well, is the long-standing distrust in black communities of mainstream media and sort of the history of trauma from interactions with powerful institutions like health researchers and governments. Could you maybe unpack for us a little bit how that exacerbates the issue, although I imagine it's um, reasonably obvious, but also, you know, what can be done to address it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's this issue broadly around people's mistrust of mainstream media that we see driving a lot of rhetoric online, on political and non-political, but particularly for Black communities, there's this long history of either exclusion from the narratives or narratives being shaped about Black people without Black people. And uh, and so one of the, the things that I point to, which I'm not sure, I can't remember if I mentioned in the report, is actually the Kerner Report, which was released in the 60s. And it was around the civil unrest that was happening around the country. There were a lot of protests around police killings. And the president at that time, Lyndon B. Johnson, commissioned a group of um, researchers and decision makers to really look into what are the conditions surrounding these like uprisings. And part of what they found when they came back in the report, they found a, a number of different uh, conditions that exist. But one of the most damning critiques they had based on interviews and polling and talking to Black communities was that they couldn't trust what was being said by the New York Times or what was being said by uh, the media of note that was highly credentialed in their communities. And they felt like depictions of Black people were extremely harmful and that the information they were getting was not accurate. And so, again, when you're talking about the 60s and you consider this, just going back that far, you're looking at decades of mistrust. Now, cut to today, or even let's go five years ago, Ferguson happens. When the Ferguson uprisings are starting to happen around the country, it's not being reported on by CNN. It's not being really reported on by a lot of mainstream outlets. One of the things we often talk about is that it actually took one million tweets before CNN first started talking about it. So again, this history of feeling like our stories are untold or undertold. Um, and I also, we, we've done reports at Color of Change that I've found, particularly on New York local news, for example, that Black criminality is exaggerated significantly on the local news, which means people are used to associating criminality with Blackness. And so when you take all of that, there's this, this uneasy sort of pact we almost have with media where in some ways I think we're still all trained to say, well, it's in the media. If it's in the New York Times or it's in the local news, it holds some level of, of, of weight or truth to it. But then there's also this, this pulling back of, well, they're not going to know everything around Black people. And certainly, if we look in the early days and some of the early deaths in the United States, they were Black people, but they weren't being reported on by race, if at all. And so in absence of a story that makes sense to Black communities, you start looking to other places to fill in the blanks, and that's what takes you into you know, certain online spaces and certain narratives that are, that are flying around that seem to fill in those gaps. I mean, the, the paper notes that Color of Change has tracked disinformation initiatives targeted at Black communities, including voter suppression and voter disengagement uh, for several years, along with efforts by white supremacists to pretend to be Black, so it's called digital blackface, to, to infiltrate Black communities. So how does the, the misinformation you describe around the coronavirus compare to these other incidents of disinformation and misinformation among Black people online? Is it sort of another similar example out of a line of examples that come out of the same 
place of distrust and underrepresentation and efforts to make sense of what's going on? Or is it qualitatively different in some way? Mm, I think that's an interesting question. And and also, I want to speak to an initial question you asked, which was like, and what can we do? And there's a lot of things we could do. But one important one would definitely be to find government support in other ways to uplift community owned and controlled media. That's that's one of the biggest things that should be happening. And we push for like stimulus money to also have some things in there around protections for journalists and, and investment into community owned media. So that's one quick thing I do want to give a plug for. But in terms of like, is it different? I mean, it's Huh. It's it's like so it's it's hard to say. Right. Because I, I feel like so many roads of misinformation tend to to lead to our deaths or at least a shortening of our lives, whether it's hate speech, violent hate speech online that then facilitates the next you know, domestic terrorists going out and killing Black people or Muslim communities or, you know, other communities harmed that tech companies don't take responsibility for, or, you know, even some of the ways in which they've supported genocide globally in um, disproportionately communities of color. It's these closed police groups in which horrible information and misinformation is being shared and um, police experience is being validated in a way that then leads a cop to like go out on the street and feel like they are fully within their rights to kneel and snuff out the life of somebody for an agonizing period of time and think that they're not going to be held accountable for that. And then you have this like medical disinformation, which maybe in some ways is a fainter trace because it does take a lot of different systems failing uh, to get to kind of the end result that we've seen in terms of disproportionate impact in Black communities of, um, you know, Black death. But it's still there in terms of that ability for disinformation to roam free unchecked and this like lack of care when it comes to the protection of Black lives and the validation of white male voice over Black life online that happens again and again, that that travels down this same road, whether you're talking about electoral disinformation, you know, disinformation about BLM or Antifa or disinformation around white nationalism or disinformation about COVID-19. Okay, so let's continue this trend then of zooming out to talk about sort of disinformation more broadly. You recently appeared before a House subcommittee hearing ominously and dramatically titled A Country in Crisis, How Disinformation (laughs) Online is Dividing the Nation. I mean, what is your reaction to that title? Like, it's something that we're trying to unpack in this series a little bit is, are we really in a moment of particular crisis where things are especially bad right now? Or is it just simply that we're finally paying attention to issues that have been there for a very long time? We're in crisis. Make no mistake about it. There are issues that have been there for a long time that haven't been dealt with, that are are blossoming in these um, particularly toxic ways, but they have been accelerated by unaccountable tech companies. And again, it's not just the U.S. This is a global crisis. These are global companies. You know, some places are better off than others because they have you know, countries or systems built for regulation in a way that ours are not. But this is a major issue in terms of the ways in which even when tech companies say that they're upholding 
free speech, they're actually bastardizing it in a number of ways uh, that are making people unsafe on the platforms. They're rewriting the rules in real time. The Washington Post dropped an amazing article, I think the either this past Friday or the Friday before last, around looking at the ways in which uh, Facebook has continuously rewritten the rules of what's acceptable on their platform to build loopholes in for Trump and certain politicians and how that's had implications, not just in the U.S., but in the Philippines, Myanmar, other places. Um, and so we are in crisis. Now, there, again, there's a lot of things that get us to this point. And one of the biggest is government failure to regulate, which is a long-standing problem um, that has been an issue since uh, deregulation started happening in the 80s, accelerated through the 90s, and have gotten us up till now. So the fact that these companies are so big, someone was asking me the other day around, you know, boycotting Facebook on an individual level and the effectiveness of that. And it's like, they have so much of our data anyway that you could never set foot on Facebook another day in your life and they'll still have a data profile on you. Um, not to mention the fact that there's no viable alternatives. And so when the government says that they're uncomfortable, which I heard a lot of in that testimony, well, we're uncomfortable with the idea of stepping in and actually doing regulation. Um, besides the fact that I'm like, well, actually then what is your job, government or Congress? I think that it really speaks to the fact that these companies are so unwieldy that there's nobody able to check them. And in the case of Facebook in particular, Mark Zuckerberg is the CEO, chairman of the board, and majority shares of his of his board. So it's like, really, who is going to check him? Really, is who is going to rein that in? And I think what we've seen is then an acceleration of these platforms that are built to make emotions operate more at extreme level to build more histrionics into our day-to-day engagement. That's how the platforms kind of like grow and evolve. And when you have those kind of conditions, nobody prepared to regulate them, them not prepared to regulate themselves. I think, yes, we are fully on in a crisis that will get worse before it gets better. So, so coming away from the hearing, I mean, what what are your feelings about where lawmakers are in the issue? I mean, both in terms of whether they understand it in the first place, and then whether there's any energy to sort of mobilize around it and do something. Lawmakers don't understand it. <laughs> Let's just be clear about that. In some ways, that is a problem of lawmakers, and in some ways, that speaks to a broader issue. It's hard to understand this stuff. It's so wonky. I've been doing some form of this work for a decade, over a decade. And even still, when somebody like asks me a question about 2.30, like I lock up, I'm like, what? Not 2.30? It's like, it's, it's hard. And it's intentionally so because the more that Silicon Valley can make this a, a unique and special and different problem that only they can fix or understand or demystify, the more that keeps those away who may ask too many questions and may make too many choices that then cut into their bottom line. And so I think that there's a lot of work to get legislators better caught up. There's a lot of ways in which we as a society need to be better caught up. And there's a lot of ways in which we need to kind of like resist the urge to make issues of like civil rights, human rights, and engagement issues about the tech in and of itself 
because the questions are like so much broader than that. And I think it does a disservice to like make these technical questions. They're philosophical questions and they're questions around the health, wellness and safety of our country that need to be asked in more simple ways. First, thank you for your honesty, because I certainly feel that a lot of the time as well, that it's just such a mammoth issue and there's so many moving parts and some of it's really technical and some of it's really complicated. So I certainly often feel uh, that freezing up as well. So it's nice to know I, I, I'm not the only one and I've got, got company. I guess to that last point that you made about you know these being philosophical issues and not just tech issues. So let's talk about the you know the big philosophical debate i guess that gets put on the table the arbiters of truth argument that's the name of our podcast series so let's um let's go there to the extent that we've just talked about how terribly tech companies are doing in the context of health misinformation and how they completely lack cultural competency and you know all of that leads to suggest that we should be a little bit concerned that they'd also do a terrible job of policing uh, misinformation and disinformation in other realms as well, and particularly when it's harder to come by uh, objective facts like in politics. Uh, What's your response to the arbiters of truth argument? Yeah. So I want to like actually lovingly, if I may, push back on the fact that they're doing horribly with health uh, disinformation, misinformation. They could get better, but they're actually doing way better at it that it it actually makes my head spin because the things that we have been asking for when it comes to hate speech on their platform they've been telling us that we can't do this we can't do that oh the technology is not going to work oh we don't have enough content moderators and they don't understand what they were able to get up in terms of infrastructure to deal with medical disinformation across all of the platforms within a month and a half i would say if not shorter is actually quite impressive and speaks to the deeper capabilities of Silicon Valley. I'm very pleased to hear that. I'm just wanting, because um, I, I mean, I think that's fantastic. I know, um, I'm, I'm very happy to get the pushback. Uh, and that's a good news story. It's sort of maybe the first bit of good news we've heard in the last 35 minutes. So that's that's excellent. <laughs> but how do you quantify that? Because I mean, from my perspective, uh, we've seen a lot of like big announcements from tech companies that they're really cracking down and they're working so hard to do this. What is it that gives you the confidence that that's actually how it's playing out in practice? Yeah. um, So I think there's a couple of things. So one, going back to the Twitter example, one of the things that we were pointing out is that there was a lot of disinformation that was disproportionately being targeted towards marginalized communities that for XYZ reasons are, are most at risk of the implications from disinformation. And when Twitter rewrote their rules to account for COVID disinformation, they were really specific in there around talking about black disinformation or talking or getting like really specific within a civil rights frame, which I'll come back to in a second, around how to deal um, with COVID disinformation. And so I thought that was really important. Secondly, just in doing, you know, kind of hand searches or whatever, or some of the different things you see, it's like, you see a lot of natural information in across the platforms that's talking about COVID that allows you more entry point into accurate information from the CDC, from WHO, from from outlets that are of note talking about COVID or medical establishments. And so I think that's really important. And, and we've seen a taking down of, you know, inaccurate COVID information. So not just a slapping a news label on it, except when it comes to the president um, or other people, but an actual manually like removal 
of um, this bad information before it travels too far into communities. And so we've seen really specific changes, actually, that I would say Twitter has been the best at this. YouTube has been more interesting at it. Uh, Facebook has been Facebook about it. But, But to each company, you've seen them do more on this than they've been willing to do when you get to the issue of hate speech and white nationalism. Well, that's very encouraging. Um, and yes, Facebook's going to Facebook. So, okay, so let's go back to the arbiters of truth argument because I cut you off. Um, what do you make yeah. of that argument? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I call I call bull blank on that argument, full stop. Like I think, and now is the time where I give my like sort of iron rant, rant that I like to give. So like a lot of, there's this like false perception of Silicon Valley as being this like really liberal space. And that's been... The agreement that we've had on which we argue the validity of uh, anti-conservative bias, that Silicon Valley is liberal and in some ways they have to fix themselves in order to even deal with the anti-conservative bias on their platform. And that's simply not true. Like from the beginning, Silicon Valley has been built in order to, in fact, like cater to conservatives in a number of different ways. White nationalists are the early adopters of new technology on the platforms, which I'm not completing white nationalists with conservatives, but of course, but, you know, there are IT people that have like long used the platforms that have had a specific analysis around things, whether they are white nationalists or whether it's like these adherents to Ayn Rand. And so that is one of the fascinating things to me about the history of Silicon Valley is that, and, and that I know from having lived in like Oakland and San Jose and Silicon Valley, it's like when you walk into any quote unquote bookstore to the extent those exist, like on the top 10, perennial on the top 10 is Fountainhead. It's like all of these things. And for folks that are less familiar with Ayn Rand, uh, she is uh, one of the philosophers that talked about objectivism. And so this idea that altruism is bad and that and push back against this idea of um, regulation of any form and that through a certain amount of chaos an actual new agreed upon society or democracy is built that um, renders traditional systems of democracy useless or no longer useful. And so if you understand that like most of the people in Silicon Valley operate from this framework, then you know that from jump they have no desire for any sort of regulation in any form. So that's kind of like the first thing. The other thing is that we know that, you know, the First Amendment exists for very particular reasons. It exists to protect people against, you know, government overreach and punishment. It exists in order to ensure that, like, those that may be perceived as kind of like marginalized voices, even at that time, if we were still talking about marginalized white men, it was still this idea that like dissent could, you know, come out and come into a space without people being punished by government, punished in all of these different ways. And then we've have the ways in which courts have interpreted First Amendment that have added, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, that have put these sort of guardrails around how we define First Amendment speech. But when you get into Silicon Valley and you get into these platforms, they're actually using free speech in name only, but the ways in which they're carrying out actions on their platforms actually has the opposite effect of protecting free speech, it, which is the only explanation for why Trump is allowed to like have posts up on Facebook that are directly um, making threats 
towards communities and aren't being removed. Like, how is that actually a, a fair application of free speech, I would ask. And then the other layer to that is that we have civil rights laws in our country that we have passed that tech companies say they don't have to abide by. So they go into different spaces of courts, any lawsuit legislation, and they say they are not obligated to abide by the civil rights laws of the land, which means, again, there's like no vested interest in actually upholding any of the regulation or laws or constitution that we put in place. It's just all a talking point that provides cover for this more sort of like manic, chaotic space in which then tech companies are able to sort of emerge as the heroes that are the only ones that are able to fix the society that they have in many ways contributed to breaking. So that kind of leads us to this campaign that Color of Change has been involved with recently, which is the hashtag Stop Hate for Profit, um, which is is not quite directly related to disinformation, but I think touches on a lot of what you just mentioned. So can you just sort of tell our listeners a bit about the campaign, what Color of Change's role in it is, and sort of how it's going so far? Yes. And so the campaign does in some ways um, tie to disinformation. So that's, it's this idea that um, for years, Color of Change, along with other groups, have been calling on tech companies to put some rules in, of the road in place around how violent hate speech operates online. And again, we're talking about this from the way it's legally defined. We're not talking about, we're trying to say that, that people in some way can't have an opinion that I disagree with without being punished. We're talking about all the ways in which the courts have divined violent hate speech that directly leads to violence in offline or in other spaces. We've been calling on them for years to have more regulation around that. And we've seen them flatly reject that in a number of different ways. And then you add to that, the ability for sort of hoax and conspiracy theories to run free that are often anti-Black in nature. Then you layer onto that this like, you know, additional disinformation that's happening that's flowing into like really specific spaces like the Boogaloo closed spaces and, and some others that then are wreaking havoc offline. We really felt like um, we've seen people call for individual boycotts. As I've said this before, when you have billions of people on your platform, what is a hundred people leaving? matter to you? What do a thousand people matter to you? One million even. Like it's it's really high numbers you have to get into to actually make a dent for Facebook. But where there is theoretically more power is in advertisers that are spending millions of dollars a month, a week um, to advertise on the platforms. So we said if we could go to companies and we could ask them for one month, you've put out all of these Black Lives Matter statements, you've talked about how you want to see equity in our society. And so we're, we're putting this challenge to you and, and particularly corporations and businesses. We have not called for nonprofits or political entities or even small businesses necessarily to engage in this boycott, specifically because the intention is not to like hurt people or entities that are already disproportionately harmed by the platform. But can we go to Nike and say, hey, for one month in the U.S., can you not sell your shoes using Facebook ads? If we could make that ask and we could get so many companies to say, yes, I can do that for a month, that that would be the only thing that could get Facebook's attention. And in a way, it has. In another way, it's been disheartening, if I'm being honest, to see news articles about Zuckerberg telling his staff, well, we can just wait it out for a month because 
where else are they going to go? Which again, brings us back to the question of regulation and really cracking down on the company in such a way that something like this could have a deeper impact than that. But it has been a pretty successful campaign in that we've gotten over 500 companies thus far to say that for the month of July, they were pausing their spending and to make an affirmative statement publicly. So not just pause spending behind closed doors and pat themselves on the back, but affirmatively say that Facebook is engaging in behavior that we find egregious and unacceptable. And for this month, we are joining our colleagues in not, you know, enriching them in any way. Okay, so after the campaign started, uh, Mark Zuckerberg did announce some changes around their policies, um, including getting on the record that politicians won't be exempt from rules around incitement to violence, which, like, great, um, or voter suppression, (laughs) and that if they breached other rules, they would get public interest labels. So why do you think these changes uh, didn't go far enough? Yeah. So first of all, the some of the word even as changes, I was like, uh, I thought that's what the policy already said. So basically, what I'm hearing you say is, quote unquote, you're going to enforce them now in a ways that you hadn't before, even though the policies already exist. The problem with that is that even there, they still built in a loophole for people that have some of the biggest platform. So they still immediately rushed to say, well, this still doesn't apply to Trump. He's still not in violation, even when he's giving out inaccurate information that's causing a run on lupus medication. Even when he's talking about like shooting people and all of this, that still doesn't violate our standards, you know, but maybe we'll slap a news worthiness label on it. And then at the same time, almost at the same time, Zuckerberg comes out of his home in Hawaii to give this like speech around all these quote unquote changes he's making. And it's like the number three um, most shared content on his platform is disinformation from Ben Shapiro that shows like BLM activists, you know, at, at uh, a veterans memorial, which is like widely debunked, not accurate, all of these things, still number three piece of content shared on your platform. So once again, it's like you have said that you're doing all of these things, but the things that matter, it, it actually matters whether or not somebody with a platform of millions of followers, like Trump and others, Shapiro and others, pushes out disinformation that's just able to languish for a period of time. It matters whether or not you act quickly on that. But you still built in all of these like back doors in order to assure that you don't upset the people that you're most concerned about upsetting and that you're still treating this more as a PR crisis that you just have to wait out until it goes away than something that has like, your policies have directly resulted in lives lost in the U.S., in like other countries, is thrown elections into chaos, is put authoritarians in power. Like these are your policies. Like And you're still like treating this like it's just something you need to wait out. And I I think that the fact that even there were so many journalists initially that rushed to say that this was something new was actually, quite frankly, a little bit shocking to me. But thank goodness that there's like other, you know, tech reporters out there and people that are a bit more savvy and have been around the block a few more times that were able to call this what it was. Great. So one of the, I mean, I appreciate you also emphasizing that this is not enough and we still need 
the the lawmakers um, for the reason that you identified, which is like these monoliths are barely noticing a dent. But also one of the things that I've been thinking about in the context of the campaign is the downsides of relying on commercial pressure more generally um, Mm -hmm. and how it can sometimes be a fickle friend to minority voices. Um, And, you know, (laughs) advertisers weren't boycotting before this particular cultural moment when it seems to be a uniquely good branding opportunity um, to be taking a stand against racism. Um, And it's possible that they won't be around again after this particular news cycle. Um, And I'm just sort of interested to get your thoughts about as a campaigner um, and and as someone that's been working on these issues for a a long time, well before this moment, uh, how you think about uh, sort of the potential divergence of interest between yourselves and what you're trying to achieve um, and the advertisers and what they might want to be achieving. um, and, And, you know, as well, like things like content that they may deem objectionable that they don't want their ads running next to um, might actually be some quite important political speech that we would want protected. So does any of that concern you at all? Is that something that you think about as you've been crafting this campaign? Yeah. So this is, I'm going to be honest here, this has been a humdinger a little bit for me because I have a fundamental critique of capitalism and of corporations that has been like a, a guiding star for our work. Like we've seen historically that corporations have done a lot of active harm to Black communities on a number of fronts, to marginalized communities on a number of fronts. And with the issue of money and power have have been able to, you know, sort of set the rules of the road in terms of like when we're dealing with Congress's hesitation around regulation, like, let's be honest, there's reasons for that. And it, they start with, if you go into Little Sis or you get go into any place and you see who's actually funding their reelection campaign, it's often these corporations, right, that then we're asking them to regulate. So that, that's a weird thing in and of itself. And then it's also like this weird space. I remember when Verizon first dropped. And again, I've been doing this work for a while, right? And so net neutrality was my first entry point into what we call, quote unquote, media justice work. And I have spent the last 10 years painting Verizon as the villain that they rightfully deserve to be painted as. And then they became one of the first companies to say, we're not going to do our ads in July. And then people are like, oh, yay, Verizon. And it's kind of like, cool. So a stopped clock is right twice in a day. But what does this mean in August? And and so I think that like we have to be careful not to give corporations too much credit. We have to be careful to acknowledge when corporations have taken a step, because I do think that is important. I do think that we have to push a certain amount of responsibility. But I think that it is not enough for them to say, okay, for this one month, we're not going to spend money in the U.S. um, and still run international ads or still treat their employees horribly. Like we saw Pinterest kind of like come out and issue their Black Lives Matter statement. And at the exact same time, we were talking to two of their now ex-Black employees who were treated horribly there. And so we can't pave over those stories, but I think it is still important that we do call on corporations to do more than release a tweet saying they they align with with black people like we have to keep pushing them further and further and we have to know that every time we sit at the negotiating table with them for everything they readily agree to there's 20 things they could be doing that they're not doing and we can't lose sight of that in in this corporate campaigning work so like today you might give a half-hearted 
thanks Verizon, but like we're about to be back at it again and not even just next month, like right now, net neutrality still has to be fought for and won. Like there's still a lot of ways in which, you know, and I'm picking on Verizon, but I could run the table on in terms of corporations have stood up. Like we cannot say that just because we thank you for this one action that we're done and now you automatically get this like redemption arc. Um, and so that's at the key of like what's important to me from a campaigning aspect that like I have to keep pushing forward on. So let's close out by going really, really big picture. So one of the promises of social media has always been that it can sort of give the voiceless and people who are often marginalized a voice and a platform and help them get their message out in a way that wouldn't be possible um, in a world that's more controlled by gatekeepers. So as an activist and a campaigner, do you do you think that social media can be good and productive in that way? Or are you in the sort of burn it all down camp of, you know, everything is rotten and we need to start from scratch? <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny. as you were talking, I was thinking about so uh, the other day, I don't know why, like, I just I wa- I rewatched The Little Mermaid, which was like one of my favorite movies. And so I was imagining like Ariel kind of having this voice ripped out from her um, by the witch and then sea witch Ursula and then having it kind of restored back and happily ever after. And the truth of the matter is that I feel like these tech companies have gotten away with this talking point that they've given marginalized groups, their voices. And one thing that I've always said is that if you look at history, whatever new technology is introduced, there is immediately the ways in which marginalized voices have looked to make use of that, whether that's in you know, newspapers and thinking about in in the UK, like leftists would sort of smuggle newspapers and I think caskets to get to their communities to get around the taxation from like the mainstream papers. Or you look at radio and 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 low power FM stations, like which each t- new technology, there's a rush for marginalized voices to think about how can we use this in service of our cause. And then comes the moment where those that that own the technology and and own the society come back in and clamp down on it. And that's part of what we've seen with the evolution of social media. We've seen initially that 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 was a place that was leveraged as a tool and it's still leveraged as a tool. Like George Floyd in some ways maybe doesn't happen in the same way were it not for social media vehicles as much as true. But, But does it give voice to activism? No. And does the harm that these companies are doing at this point more like the the harms that they're doing does not justify letting them do whatever they have to do. And so like technology is beautiful. Technology is glorious. Like we can't ever forget that like technology can be a tool for liberation when wielded white. And we can never forget that there are people in power who will always seek to make sure that technology only belongs to the elites. And that's the battle that we're in right now. And that's what we're looking at when we look at regulation and even some of the fallout from what I think were actually really solid Reddit moderation rules coming into place and immediately like hijacking that conversation to make it about, you know, sort of white male voice in that moment or what have you. Like we we have to like really separate again the question of should a tech company exist that has no accountability on any level from whether or not people deserve to have a technology that allows us opportunities to organize for a better world. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Brandy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.